Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, wow, is this the first one we're recording after coming back from Thanksgiving? I uh, believe it is. I'm losing track here. Uh, okay, hey, it's it's wintertime. No, though not technically, right? When does wintertime actually start? Is that around the solstice? Um, yeah, I think depends on where you are, right? Depends what part of the world you're in. This was not an interesting way to start the episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Are we talking uh, about well, a literal well, winter? Or are we talking about the like the winter of our discontent? Uh, you know, it, 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 various ways of looking at it. But yes, to your point, we're just back from Thanksgiving break, so we had a little bit of listener mail pile up, uh, or collect anyway, and uh, Ed, some of it I haven't even glanced at yet, uh, I, I, uh, seeing how we were away from, I was away from my computer. Yeah, it's coming in fast and hot, uh, like a big old, big old rushing river of gravy. Uh, mm-hmm. Robert, are you cool if I start by reading this message about mushroom foraging? I think this is in response to a uh, to a vault episode we did recently. This one from Maya. Go for it. Okay, subject line on Maya's email: an inadvertent psychedelic experience in 18th century England. Okay, mm-hmm. you you know how to get our attention. Maya says, "Hi, Joe and Rob." I've been a fan of the show for many years now. I used to have very long commutes. I live in Mexico City, and pre-COVID, you would join me on my three, sometimes four hours of endless traffic jams every day. Nowadays, I work from home, but manage to keep up with the show. I just listened to the rerun of the Mushroom Foraging episodes and remembered a passage from Mike J's aptly named book, High Society, Mind-Altering Drugs in History and Culture. Uh, uh, and I actually wasn't familiar with this author, I don't think, uh, but I, I looked him up and he's got, uh, at least one book with Yale university press about, uh, the history of mescaline that looks interesting. Um, but so this appears to be a, a broader survey of, uh, of psychedelic drugs in, in human history. And, uh, Maya, Maya goes on to say a copy here in case you would like to, uh, read it and perhaps have a good time. So there's a sizable chunk here. I'm just going to summarize the first part, and then and then I'll get into to reading the quote uh, that that Maya includes. So this takes place in October of 1799, and apparently we know the story because uh, it was relayed by a doctor named Everard Branda, who was uh, who was called to a house in London where a family was complaining of a bunch of extremely bizarre symptoms, uh, possibly suffering from some kind of poisoning. And what it looks like happened is the father of the family, who was identified just by initials as J.S., had gone out to pick some mushrooms and was going to cook them up into a broth for breakfast for his family, for for his wife and his several children. So he picks some mushrooms out in a place called Green Park, and then he brings them home. And he adds, uh, he cooks them up with, it specifies the ingredients, flour, water, and salt. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know about making a broth with flour, but without fat. That that seems kind of dangerous. He's got to make that roux first, right? Or I don't know. You, you ever add flour just straight to water? That seems strange. Yeah, it seems like you would go for the roux first. But uh, so he cooks them up and the family eats this mushroom broth and then they start having very strange experiences. So the father gets vertigo and he can't keep his balance and he reports uh, seeing black spots within his vision. 
And then other people in the family were feeling stomach cramps and coldness at their extremities. And so the father tries to leave the house to go find somebody to help them. Uh, but then it says, uh, quote, within a few hundred yards away, he was found in a confused state, having already forgotten where he was going and why. And the doctor was called. And here I'll pick up with this uh, passage from this book by Mike J. Quote, by the time Dr. Branda arrived, the family's symptoms were rising and falling in giddy waves. He noted their pulses and breathing intensifying and fading, periodically almost returning to normal before launching into another crisis. All of them were seized by the idea that they were dying, except for the eight-year-old son, Edward, whose symptoms were the strangest of all. Edward had eaten a large portion of the mushrooms and was, quote, attacked with fits of immoderate laughter, <laughs> immoderate, um, from which neither the, the threats of his father nor mother could restrain him. Between laughing fits, he exhibited, quote, a great degree of stupor from which he was roused by being called or shaken, but immediately relapsed, unquote. The pupils of his staring eyes were the size of saucers, and he would speak only nonsense. Quote, when roused and interrogated as to it, he answered indifferently, yes or no, as he did to every other question, evidently without any relation to what was asked. Uh, and then finally, uh, Jay writes that Branda put this in a description that was sent off to a journal called the Medical and Physical Journal. Uh, with an understanding that, uh, in Branda's words, quote, these deleterious effects on a very common species of, uh, of agaric, not hitherto suspected to be poisonous, uh, should be made known to doctors and public alike. Uh, and then uh, coming back into Maya's part of the message, Maya says that they had eaten a good portion of liberty caps or psilocybe simulanciata. Uh, all the more reason for Englishmen to be mycophobic, I guess, although one has to wonder what little Edward's experience was like. Have a great time and keep up the great work, Maya. Oh, well, thanks, Maya. That, that, was, that was wonderful. I wasn't familiar with this episode. Yeah, yeah. Super interesting. Thanks for sending it along. Uh, okay, so Rob, you want to read this message from Taylor about chainsaws? This actually directly addresses a question uh, we, we asked about people's experiences with. The one about, uh, you know, if you ever worked in a haunted house where mm -hmm. they use chainsaws, how did that work? Yeah, yeah. So Taylor writes in and says, hey, Rob, Joe, and Seth, I was just listening to your invention of the chainsaw episode. And you were wondering whether running a chainsaw without its chain for the sake of safety at a haunted attraction might damage the machine. I worked at several haunted houses and spook alleys during high school and college and may have an answer for this question. In my experience, prop chainsaws do have chains, but the teeth of the chains are made of rubber and they're run at low speeds. This allows for the chainsaw to be run without engine damage while keeping guests safe. Were a chainsaw-wielding actor to accidentally make contact with a guest's bare skin, the worst injury they'd risk is a mild friction burn. As always, thank you for doing what you do and being my parasocial friends to <laughs> chat about science, culture, and weird movies with. Taylor. Man, that would be the world's scariest mild friction burn, though. <laughs> yeah, it would be like the, the rope burn from hell. Um, oh, and also I should note in a PS, Taylor asks for our thoughts on the new Dune movie. But I guess this was uh, before, Taylor, probably before you heard our multiple episodes on Dune. But if you have any more questions and want us to talk about Dune even more, uh, write back with more specifics. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have plenty of, uh, of thoughts. I'm, I'm rereading Dune. Uh, right now, so I'm, I'm having a lot, a lot of additional thoughts about 
you know, how the how the the film adapted the story, you know, things that by necessity had to be left out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and and in some cases they're terrific things. Like there's that whole that whole weird relationship between Peter and uh, the Baron. Uh, you know, we we get a little of it on the screen, but uh, there, there's so much more. There's such a it's such a twisted relationship. Um, and, and also, I've been I've been uh, you know li- listening to some other podcasts and looking at some other information about um, you know critiques on the making of the film and mm-hmm. uh, what could potentially have been been better and what, what they might be angling to to hopefully are angling to do better in the next uh, installment. So uh, yeah, uh, happy mm-hmm. to continue talking about Dune. All right. Well, after this, we got a couple of messages uh, that were following up from, I, I think, one part of the Chainsaw episodes where we quoted the authors of that uh, Chainsaw as a History book, where they said, you know, a chainsaw would actually not make a very good Texas Chainsaw Massacre weapon because, quote, they'll hear you coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a couple of people responded with a pretty good counterpoint. So one of them was James. James said, Rob and Joe, sorry I'm behind on my podcast and trying to catch up. I'm currently listening to your Chainsaw Invention episode. Early on, y'all talked about having to start a chainsaw. Obviously, this is a skill, but a well-maintained saw will normally start on one pull. Anyway, I wanted to mention electric chainsaws. As we all move away from fossil fuels, uh, chainsaws are not being left behind. They are quiet and could be used for stealth. However, they don't have that terrifying roar of a chainsaw. Instead, it has an electric whine. Sincerely, James. Now, James, I think this is a really good point, but I want to be clear that I I understand neither James nor, of course, not us are recommending any stealth uses of chainsaws. I think any use of chainsaws should be uh, very clear and out in the open. You're you're you would prefer people use uh, like daggers or very big knives. <laughs> no. no, I'm saying it like all uses, uh, uh, even nonviolent uses of chainsaws. Uh, no, nobody should be trying to be stealthy about it. OK, fair enough. But this is a very good point. You know, I mentioned uh, in a in a previous listener mail that I actually had a chance to use a chainsaw in my yard uh, since the episodes we recorded, and it was an electric chainsaw. So there's no mm. revving at all. I mean, it just goes from from dead quiet, not moving to 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 ripping right through the wood. Hmm. And another thing, we actually talked about this in the the history of chainsaws episode, is that electric chainsaws are not new. I mean, one of the first uh, commercially successful chainsaw models was uh, the wolf and i'm pretty sure if i recall correctly they they had an electric model before they had an internal combustion model hmm. yeah i mean it, it kind of runs parallel with a lot of uh, what was happening in the world of, of of motors and engines uh electricity versus the use of uh of fossil fuels right that it, you could you could more easily make an electric motor in a compact handheld form than you could a uh, an internal combustion motor at the time yeah Oh, but I also just wanted to say that on the same subject, we got a message from Lee, and Lee says, uh, hello, Robert and Joe. Just a quick thought on chainsaws in horror movies. If you've ever watched loggers in chainsaw competitions, uh, apparently they use something called hot saws. (laughs) These go from sitting to wide open with one pull. I think hearing nothing then a wide open saw in a horror movie or a haunted house would be more terrifying than the idling saw with a few revs, especially if the screaming motor was coupled with a mannequin of some type. Just a thought. Love the show. Lee. Uh, wow. Hot saws. No, I had not heard of that, but I guess that makes sense. And it does make me. Isn't there a scene, at least in the second Texas Chainsaw movie, where 
Leatherface like jumps out of a dark room with the chainsaw immediately squealing, like going from nothing to yeah. So I guess this must have either been an electric saw or a hot saw. Well, you know, know, you know the saw. You know the sawyer's like that hot sauce. So it it stands to reason they would use a hot saw as well. That's a good point. Yeah. So how do you make a a saw a, a saw into a hot saw? Well, you just keep it really well maintained. I guess so, but I mean, the saw is family, so I imagine they did. All right, well, we also got some uh, great messages in response to our episodes about crabs. Mm, Yes, this one comes to us from Matt. Hey, Robert and Joe, I was listening to your November 16th episode on crabs and I had a thought while you were describing crabs. That is the classic Dungeons and Dragons monster. The And, uh, you know, I've never said this, this monster's name aloud. I believe it's what, uh, Tarask? I don't know. I've never said it either. Uh, I, ha- I had an inkling in my mind that this was uh, derived from a, a French creature, but um, he, uh, he's always too big and too powerful. Like, this is one of those monsters that... Um, you know, as a, if you're, if you're, if you're actually, you know, dungeon mastering something, you'll look through the dungeon guide and there are a lot of great creatures, but some of them are just so powerful. You're never going to get like, when do you get to bust out one of these creatures? I don't know. I'd, I'd love to hear, hear about it. If you if you're a DM and you've used one of these, these behemoths, it's like a Godzilla. It's like the Godzilla of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, you know, when do you get to, to, to bust it out anyway? Um, Matt describes it as, uh, quote, actually a dinosaur-shaped crab. Consider the following. Both crabs and the tarask are clawed creatures protected by a strong carapace shell. Okay, maybe not the most exciting features yet, but bear with me. Both crabs and the tarask have a diet consisting of all the things. If it fits into the food hole, it's food. Both cannot be permanently destroyed. Though the Tarask version is decidedly faster and more magical, crabs just keep evolving into existence. Crabs have evolved from independent lineages multiple times already, so it follows that it would likely happen again and will keep happening, no matter how hard the attempt might be to destroy them. Um, Not that we should be trying to destroy crabs, mind you. But anyway, I get the point. Um, The next uh, point Matt makes... Though a detail unfortunately omitted in the 5th edition of Dungeons & Dragons, the Tarask is described as having a feature inside its digestive system designed to crush and ground down large pieces into smaller bits, going so far as describing the effect uh, as being like grounding them between boulders. This feature sounds very similar to a crab's gastric mill, which likewise grinds up food only after it has been swallowed through a similarly describable motion. There are probably more similarities that could be cited, but these are the ones that immediately came to mind. Just a random line of thought. Let me know if you agree with me or if you are wrong. (laughs) Always love the podcast, Matt. Oh, this is great, Matt. I love this. So this creature, I guess, uh, has a gastric mill like real crabs do. And uh, how do you work the gastric mill mechanic into a, a game? Would you have characters... I guess swallowed by the Tarask and mm-hmm. it, it like they have to fight the the teeth that are trying to chew them up inside the stomach. Uh, quick reminder: uh, the Dungeons and Dragons monsters uh, monster compendium uh, it does have giant crabs in it. You can always bust out some giant crabs, and uh, I don't think they're too uh, too lofty as far as difficulty goes. Though you could of course bump that up through sheer numbers. Um, I don't know if there are any great minis if you're if you're doing more of a mini based game for giant crabs. Looks like uh, just a quick search around. Looks like you can get some sort of uh, some you know three like D printed versions off of Etsy and so forth. But uh, I don't know. You might have to use real crabs. 
I just looked it up. I'm, I'm here on the D&D Beyond website. There is indeed a, uh, a stats list for giant crab. Medium beast unaligned. You know, I don't know if it would be... I, I, I check with experts on this. Uh, I don't know if you could use live hermit crabs on the tabletop. Um, <laughs> don't don't harm them in the, yeah, in the game. I don't process. want them to get hurt or be stressed out by it. So may, maybe you shouldn't do that. But, uh, you know, get some plastic crabs. Unleashed. Wait a minute. This is unfair. They're giving giant crabs an intelligence score of one. That That is not... That doesn't seem right to me. <laughs> Have they not watched Attack of the Crab Monsters? When a giant crab eats a human, it absorbs their mind and their knowledge. So a giant crab should be super intelligent. By the time ships and planes could arrive... This island will have vanished beneath the waves of the sea. But you will not drown. You will be a part of me. Well, that is a, that's a, this is an opportunity for a homebrew uh, giant crab. Um, I wonder if anybody's done that already. Uh, some sort of homebrewed giant crab um, with some sort of uh, advanced intelligence. Anyway, I love the, you know, I love some good monster science. So these are some great thoughts, Matt. Uh, Very very much appreciated. Okay, this next message comes from Liz, uh, subject line ants. Uh, Liz says, Dear Robert and Joe, I thought of sending this Ogden Nash poem for fun back when the Ant Wars episodes aired, but never got around to it, was reminded when you got into ants again in the recent Crab Content is King episode. Here it goes. The ant has made himself illustrious through constant industry industrious. So what? Would you be calm and placid if you were full of formic acid? <laughs> Thanks for all the great stuff, Liz. Oh, that- well... The- that's great, Liz. Thank That's you. That's really good. And it rhymes. Uh, you know, you real know poetry rhymes. rhymes. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Coming back around to Dune, Amy writes in and says, Hi, Robin Joe. Thanks so much for the Dune episodes. I really enjoyed watching along with the Weird House Cinema episodes. So I thought I'd read the book to prepare. I had never gotten around to it before and really loved it. Your deep dive helped me understand it better, and now I'm enjoying the sequels. A question, though. Of course, the phrase Dune Universe came up a lot. Did you ever consider using the word Duneiverse? Or was that a, a siege too far? Uh, <laughs> bless the maker and his water, Amy. Well, isn't that nice? Uh, Duneiverse. Do people mm-hmm. say that? Maybe they do. They may, they may say it. They certainly had enough time to start using it. Um, Duneiverse is, is good. I, I like it. Um, by the way, speaking of Dune, I mentioned that I, you know, I listened to a podcast about it recently. I want to go ahead and give a proper uh, reference for that because it's really good. The NPR history podcast Throughline uh, did an episode on November 9th titled Bonus, The Deep History of Dune. And it's really good. In this, the, um, the hosts speak to sci-fi writer and Princeton historian Harris uh, Durrani. Um, about uh, uh, the Islamic and Middle Eastern and North African aspects of Dune. Uh, and in this, they, they get into like, you know, what uh, Frank Herbert put into them, uh, what we see of, of that representation in the film adaptation, what could have arguably been done better, what they, what they might be able to do better in the future, etc. But it's, it's a really great listen. I highly recommend it to any, any fans of Dune uh, and or, uh, you know, world history. And I'll add that Throughline is just a great history podcast in general. Um, I highly recommend it. Oh, nice. 
Well, I guess uh, that'll wrap it up for today, but we'll be back with more listener mail next week. And, uh, and of course, uh, as usual, our, our steady flow of episodes the rest of this week. I, I don't know. I, I don't usually tell you what episodes are coming up. I'm, I'm, I'm usurping your role, Rob. Yeah, well, we don't always know what episodes are coming up. I mean, do you know what we're recording for next Thursday? Well, I guess we do in this case, but I don't know what we're recording for next Friday yet. Uh, so if, so it's sometimes it's a surprise to us. Hey, if you want to check out what we have put together in the past, uh, the, all you have to do, or in the present, all you have to do is go to uh, look up Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you get your podcasts. Just find the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. You'll find our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact on Wednesday, Listener Mail on Monday, and on Friday we do a little bit of Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set most serious matters aside and just talk about some sort of weird or wonderful film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.